through God's Word in 1 Corinthians, dealing with the gifts, and we're kind of in an introduction, we're in the middle of this introduction to chapter 12, and so hopefully we'll get through the next couple verses here at least today. But let me read our text for us, and then we'll uh, pick up where we left off last week. Now, the Word says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans or Gentiles, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we pray today that you would help us to understand um, what you desire us to to know and to to glean from this uh, study of your word here today. And Lord, we pray that more than anything else, that we would come to understand that you have gifted each and every one of us with uh, a spiritual giftedness. And Lord, you desire us to use um, these gifts for the work of your ministry here in this church and even around the world, Lord. And and we thank you that uh, there's not one believer that's not gifted to some degree spiritually. And so, Lord, we pray that as we begin, continue to this, this study through uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that we become more acquainted with our own giftedness and our own ability to serve you for your glory. And so, Father, we ask you to bless our study this morning and prepare our hearts for our communion at the end of the service. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, just quickly to review, we, we looked at the Corinthian failures, that they were taking personal pride in their gifts, they were more interested in using their gifts for personal fulfillment than for the service of other people. Uh, They failed to realize the importance of the smallest gifts, so they were looking at the gifts and the more dominant gifts or the more uh, uh, gifts that appeared to be more uh, just a larger demonstration or a teaching gift or something like that, people in front of people. Uh, They were kind of wanting those kind of gifts, and they were overlooking maybe the gifts that were done behind the scenes. So they were kind of rating those gifts in accordance to how they were being used. Uh, They failed to recognize the importance of the people whose gifts were seemingly least useful in their their mind, not in God's mind. And so we we looked at that, and we looked at these problems that they were having with spiritual gifts in the church of Corinth. And the first point in our outline last week was the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. That's really what these first three verses talk about. It talks about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives when we come to Christ. And every believer, if you profess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've repented of your sins and you've been transformed, you've been saved by His grace, you have been given a deposit of the Holy Spirit of God within your life. You don't have to pray for it. You don't have to beg God for it. It's already there. That's how you're brought into or baptized into the body of Christ. 
And so we need to be reminded of that. There's some that teach today that you need to pray for the Holy Spirit. That's not true. And we'll find that out as we work our way through these chapters. But the first thing we looked at was the nuance of spiritual gifts. He says, now, concerning, and he's changing, remember, from the physical to the spiritual. He was dealing with everything physical in the church up to this point. They were taking other believers to court. They had fornication going on. They had marriage and divorce issues. They were dealing with people who didn't know what to do with meat that was offered to idols. They were unsure. Should they eat it? Should they not? Uh, They were dealing with the roles of men and women in their church. They were abusing the Lord's table. They turned it into this immoral feast. And Paul had to address all these problems with the church of Corinth. And so when he says now concerning, remember, it's just his way of changing the subject. Whenever you see that in the writings of Paul, those words now concerning, you can say he's changing the subject or he's interjecting something into this text. And so he... He reminds them, and back all the way back in chapter uh, 7, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, that they wrote him about these things. And this was just one of the lists, the issue of spiritual gifts. And so they, they dealt with all this stuff. And so we looked at what the nature of spiritual gifts were. And it, it comes from that word spiritual, it's gifts really isn't there in the original language, and so you could just say spiritualities would be a, a proper translation. But for our understanding in English, it's okay to include the word gift, but it's not there in the original. And so that word spiritual, it, it basically is just telling us anything that has a spiritual quality to it. So these are things that are not natural abilities or talents. That's not your spiritual giftedness because you can play the flute or the piano or you can sing. That's, that's not a spiritual gift. Um, now, they can be used by your spiritual giftedness for the glory of the Lord, but that's not a spiritual gift. So they're not natural abilities or talents, we said. We also said they're not the same as the fruit of the Spirit, and we looked at those in Galatians chapter 5. Um, and, and we made note that though that's not the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It says the fruit of the Spirit, singular. So you don't get to pick and choose which fruit of the Spirit you evidence today as a believer. I think I'll show a little joy or a little peace. and you know, Well, I'm not doing too well in long... No, either you have them all or you don't. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get to pick and choose. And then he put that up against the works of the flesh. And he says the works of the flesh are evident, but not so much so with the fruit of the Spirit. You don't know if I'm expressing the fruit of the Spirit standing here or not. I could be thinking some vile thoughts about you all. You would never know. You can't read my mind. Okay? But God does. And so it's important that we remind ourselves of that, that that it's different than the fruit of the Spirit. But it's also, they're not evidenced by spiritual maturity and growth. And we talked about how in Corinth, Paul talked to these people in the church of Corinth, and he said, you know what? You, You have a plethora of spiritual gifts. You have a lot of spiritual gifts. As a matter of fact, he even went on to say, you're not even lacking in one. So they were complete in their spiritual gift. Their problem was the maturity in which they were using their spiritual giftedness. And sometimes you see that when someone comes to Christ, don't you? God maybe has gifted them with, with, with something, exhortation or something. Boy, they're out there just 
plowing through people, you know, and there's a, <laughs> there's a bunch of bodies behind them, right? Because they're, they're zealous for the Lord and God's gifted them in a certain way. But sometimes, due to lack of maturity or spiritual growth, you can actually misuse your spiritual gift. You can actually use it in the flesh rather than the spirit. And so we have to be careful about that. And it's also, we said, they're not given to you because you pray for them or you ask for them. You have no say in what spiritual gift God gives you. You have no say. You don't get the pick. God gifts certain people certain ways. He gifts other people in other ways. So we shouldn't be crying out to God, well, I want this gift. And sometimes you see those gift assessments that are given out and they kind of point you in the right direction maybe, you know, but they're not even exact. They're not perfect. You know, and sometimes people take those gifts and they, oh, I really wanted the gift of, of preaching or I wanted the gift of teaching or whatever. I, I got the gift of giving. You know, it's funny because you don't hear a lot of people complaining about that one, right? You don't hear a lot of people say, oh, I wish I had the gift of giving. The story of one pastor, his guy in his church was constantly praying for different gifts, and he knew it was wrong, but he used this example. He said, well, why don't you pray for the gift of giving? And the guy looked right at him, and he goes, well, I couldn't have that gift. And the pastor said, why? He goes, because I have the gift of receiving. <laughs> well, good try. That's not in the Bible, right? There's no such gift. So these aren't acquired abilities or talents also, which you can learn. You can't learn your spiritual gift. And sometimes we, we think that somehow we can. Now, you know, there are certain skills that come along with spiritual giftedness that can be fine-tuned. But if you came to me and said, can you teach me how to have the gift of mercy? Well, first of all, you'd be coming to the wrong person, right? <laughs> you know me well enough. But, but say I had the gift of mercy. I couldn't tell you how to have it. I couldn't sit you and put you through a course and say, now, after you're done with Steve's uh, gifted, gifted teaching on mercy, you will be gifted in mercy. It doesn't work that way. It's not something that you can be taught. Uh, and I think that's good. That's good, that God divinely gives out these gifts. Because, you know what, it's up to him, not us. Because I guarantee you, we'd fall in the same situation that the Corinthians did, we'd be opining after certain gifts that seem more dynamic or, wow, the more showy gifts, you might say. I want that gift. I want this gift. Well, you don't have any say in what gift you have, so just relax, okay? Just trust God that he's got it all worked out. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, you know what? I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. That's okay. Matter of fact, that might even be good. A lot of times people discover what their spiritual gift is and you probably have more than one spiritual gift. You have at least one, but most people have more than one. And once they discover what their spiritual gifts are, what do they do? Well, I have the gift of prophecy, let me tell you. Or I have the gift of teaching, and they start, this pride sets in. It's a lot better just to serve the Lord. Just serve the Lord. Do what comes natural for the Lord. And that's, you know, he'll, he'll unveil your spiritual giftedness as you do that. Don't think just because you don't know exactly what your spiritual gift is that you can't serve the Lord. Sometimes you've got to get in there and roll your sleeves up and, and start helping out. And once you start helping out, you realize very quickly, maybe dealing with little uh, elementary children down in the Sunday school class isn't your spiritual giftedness. 
Why? Because every Sunday when you try to help out, you're pulling your hair out. You go home frustrated. You're, well, that's probably not your giftedness. Try something else. Try serving or, or different, different ways that you can help out within the body of Christ. But so you've got to be doing something. So those are what we said they're not. And then we said what they are is the result of God's grace. And we looked at Romans twelve six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So God gives us his gifts according to his grace. And then it says, let us use them. Let us use them, not for ourselves. Gifts were never given to us. Spiritual gifts are not given to us for our own edification. And we'll get into that more. And that's unfortunately where a lot of the charismatic movement today goes all wrong because it's all about them. And so we have to be aware of that. So they're, they're given as a result of God's grace. And the second, we said they're the given to all believers. Well, the third point we got to, and we're catching up with the message that we left off with last week, the need for understanding. He says there in verse 1, Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed, I think the ESV says. And so we started to look at the problem of ignorance. And we looked in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, where it talks about he doesn't want them to be unaware of this mystery. Talking about the, the fullness of Israel and, and, and the Gentiles and how that all works out. He didn't want them to be ignorant about that. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, But we do not want you, this is Paul writing, we, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. In other words, we have to remind ourselves, he says, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's talking to believers. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of that because we get carried away with the negativity of death. And so maybe a loved one dies. And what do we do? We drive ourselves into the depths of despair because they're no longer here with us. And we forget that, you know what? Yeah, they're no longer here with us, but where are they? If they knew the Lord Jesus Christ, they're in a blessed place. And it would just be pure selfishness to want them to come back here just so you could spend time with them. And that's why it says we grieve that we may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Verse 14 says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who are in Christ, you'll see them again. Hopefully that's good news. Maybe you have some relatives who are like, oh, I don't know. But for the most part, you're going to see them again, and you're going to see them in a glorified state. So any issues you had with them, it's not going to exist. And Paul goes on in verse 15. He says, For we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is something he got directly from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And it says, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Can you imagine what kind of day this is going to be? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul says, therefore, guess what? Encourage each other with these words. You know, sometimes you go to a funeral and everybody's crying. It's, ah. it's like, hey, stop. Now you've got to grieve. I get it. That's, that's part of the process, right? 
But at a certain point, our spiritual insight should kick in and the Lord should say, hey, wait a minute. This is just a body. It's just a tent. The one hanging out there in the coffin, you know, during a funeral. They're just a body. It's not, it's not who they are. Sometimes we, we want to believe, well, that's actually the person. That's just their physical tent that they had here. And sometimes we lose sight of that. But there's another place where Paul says not to be ignorant. Second Peter, if you turn over there in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, or don't be ignorant of this one fact. And then he says this, that with the Lord one day is this, as if a thousand years. What's he talking about here? A thousand years is his one day. He's basically saying God transcends time, right? There's no time. There's no yesterday and tomorrow with God. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. You know, sometimes, especially nowadays with the pandemic or whatever it is going on and all the riots and everything, I hear believers more and more and more saying this. I just, I just wish the Lord would come back. What's he waiting for? And they're, and they're almost worried about maybe he won't come back. And when you stop and think about it, that's a very selfish thing, very selfish attitude to take. I mean, I get it, fed up. Most of us are fed up with what's going on in the world, in our country. But you know what? The reason the Lord is not coming back, look it. It says, because he's patient toward us. Verse 9, not wishing that any should perish. Why isn't the Lord come back yet? Because there's still at least one more soul out there that hasn't been converted yet, that needs to be converted but that all should reach repentance, all, all, the, all the elect. God wishes and will complete the salvation of all that he's given to the Son. Not one will be lost. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you're not going to expect it. You won't know. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter says here, hey, don't be ignorant about this. Just because the Lord hasn't come back yet, that doesn't mean he's not coming back. As a matter of fact, if you're thinking of it that way, you'll probably be caught off guard. And so when we come to spiritual gifts back, Corinthians, sorry about that, Corinthians, if you come back to uh, 1 Corinthians, we talk about spiritual gifts. We see throughout the, the church today the issue that spiritual gifts are, do we not? I mean, in most churches, it's, it, you're just fighting for an argument if you bring up spiritual gifts. You have some people that believe they're for today, other people believe that some of them are for today, some of them aren't, and you get all this myriad of things. Well, why is this ignorance there? Well, I think Ephesians, Paul tells us in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 17 to 18, he tells us about this kind of ignorance that can hinder our spiritual insights. Uh, I'll I'll begin reading in verse 17, Ephesians 4. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. In other words, the warped minds they had because they're not following the ways of God. It says in verse 18, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Well, why? Why is this true, Paul? Because... What's it say? Of the ignorance that is in them. 
Well, why is the ignorance there? Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. We all know what a callus is, right? I have a couple more calluses on my hands as I came back from Pennsylvania this week. I had to rip out all this fence and do this other stuff outside. And you can take a callus on your hand. You can take a needle and shove it right in the callus. It doesn't even hurt. Why? Because it's hard. And it talks about the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 20, he says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So he's talking about believers, and he's, he's saying, hey, you know what? There's, there's a point in your life where you can give yourself over to sin, a besetting sin, or a sin that just doesn't stop. And you continue down that road, guess what? You're going to be given over to a, a hardness in your own walk. And pretty soon, you know what? Maybe the first time you take part in that sin, you feel kind of convicted and feel unworthy maybe even to come to church that Sunday because you knew you blew it the last week or whatever. And then you continue in that sin and another week goes by. Pretty soon you're not even coming to church. And you're a believer. That happens to people. They don't feel worthy. Why? Because their hard, their hard, the hardness of their heart is becoming evident. They've given themselves over to something that's not pleasing to God. That's why the Bible says if we sin, when we sin, what are we to do? Confess. Confess our sin. And God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we're called to do as believers. That's why when we have the communion table every month, it's a time of examination. It's a time of self-examination. You look at your own heart. You don't look at your neighbor's heart or your spouse's heart. You look at your own heart before God. Is there anything in your life that shouldn't be there? Well, then you confess it to the Lord. and You claim his forgiveness. You know, if you've been a Christian for a long period of time, You've seen this matter of spiritual gifts over and over in maybe different churches that you've gone to. And a lot of times, people don't even want to talk about it because it's controversial. But you know what? It's very easy to see that there's a lot of ignorance going around in the church today about spiritual gifts. And sometimes that ignorance comes from a heart that's not right with God. God has gifted us all with spiritual gifts to be used for his glory. But if you're holding on to a sin in your life, you're not giving that up to the Lord, then guess what? You're not going to be practicing your spiritual gift in the way that would be honoring to the Lord. That will compromise, it will cause callousness of the things of God in your life, especially when it comes to your spiritual giftedness. And that's the issue that they were having here in Corinth. Um, They weren't exercising their spiritual gifts in a way that honored the Lord because of sin in their life. And it's very serious. It's a very serious problem even in our modern-day churches today. And I think one of the reasons it's such a problem today is because churches aren't calling sin, sin. They're opening the floodgates. Well, we accept everybody. It doesn't matter. You know, there's nobody perfect, 
So who are we to point out any sin in your life? Well, that goes exactly against what the Bible says. You know, if you had to be perfect to come up here and preach a sermon on sin, guess what? You would never hear a sermon on sin because there is nobody perfect. I can't count the amount of times in the course of our marriage. Saturday night, we got an argument. Said something wrong, and I'm thinking, I've got to go to Sunday morning and preach. <laughs> try to resolve it. Try to resolve it. You know, I'm more instantaneous in my resolution of things sometimes when I say something that's maybe harsh or unkind to my wife, and she's more the person that has to process over a period of time. I don't like that. Because <laughs> I knew I did wrong. I'm confessing it. I know you're saying you're sorry, but... There's still this something going on here. And see, and my fear is, i got to go in there and preach. But you know what? Over time, I've even given that to the Lord. He doesn't expect me to be perfect. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm covered by his grace just as much as you are. So, you know what? It is what it is sometimes. That doesn't mean you pull away and do nothing. You've got to trust him even more in those situations. But it's a very serious thing. And so he talks here about the problem of ignorance. But then he also talks in verse 2 about the problem or the practice of idolatry. The practice of idolatry was going on in the church of Corinth. Look at what he says. You know that when you were pagans... Some of your translations may say you were Gentiles. That's caused some confusion. But really the word, can under, we can understand it as pagans. Someone who's outside of Christ is the meaning. And Paul says, you know that when you were, notice that, you were pagans. You're no longer pagans. Why? Because now you're worshiping the one true God. You've been converted. You've been transformed. And so he's kind of encouraged them in a way, even though they were all messed up. He said, hey, when you were pagans, look at what he says. You were led astray to dumb or mute idols, however you were led. In studying for this message over the last couple weeks, it's amazing to me how many commentaries and how many even pastors skip over this verse. They just act like it's not there. And they just skip over it. Because it's kind of a difficult verse to understand when you just read it on its face. What's he talking about? Dumb idols, mute idols. What's he he saying? Being led astray. Well, he's referring to pagans. He's referring to unbelievers. He's, He's talking to them in a way that hopefully is encouraging them that Paul doesn't consider them pagans now. He says, you were pagans. And he doesn't consider them pagans now is because he understands even through the Spirit of God before it was written, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That should be a blessing to our hearts. Have you ever sat down and thought of some of the things you've done in your life that weren't honoring to the Lord? If you think about that too long, you know what? You can become downright depressed. I mean, when you start thinking of your life before Christ... Maybe how you treated other people or how you treated your loved ones or even how you treated yourself. 
And you got to stop and you got to say, hey, wait a minute. I, I'm no longer that person. I'm a new person in Christ. I'm a new creation. See, that, that speaks to how bad off we were, doesn't it? God couldn't just slap some, you know, cologne on us or some lipstick or eyeshadow and say, there you go. You're good to go. No, he said, I, I, sorry, I can't help you. You know, you, sometimes you see people, it's like I got all this makeup on. and Part of me just wants to go not helping. It is not helping. I don't know who put that makeup on your face, but it is not accentuating the certain things that should be accentuated. It just looks bad. You want to tell them that. We can't even be made up. We have to be totally canceled out. That's why the Bible says we died with Christ, and now we're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. It's been done away with. See, so many times I hear believers saying, well, you know, sometimes I, I listen to my old self or, or you know, and then the new one, and i got these two natures going on within me. One's telling me to do this, and one's telling me to do that, and sometimes it gets a little confusing. You have one nature as a believer. That's your new nature in Christ. The Bible says the old nature is gone. So whatever you do that might look like the old nature... That's, that's the, the bad thing about it. You're doing it while you're possessing the new nature. And for the first time, you have the freedom to do what is right and what is honoring to the Lord. And when you choose to do that, which is not, what are you listening to? You're not listening to the old nature. You're just listening to the influence of your flesh, the world, and the devil all around you. And you're allowing them to tell you what to do rather than God's spirit. And so you have to understand, when he says here, you know that you were Gentiles or pagans, and you were led astray to mute idols. The one thing you have to understand when you study the church of Corinth and you study the city of Corinth is they had what they called uh, mystery religions back then. what, What is that? Well, it was a pagan religion. And what they would do is they would pick out a pagan god, And in their community, they would have a secret meeting around this pagan god. And they would worship that pagan god in secret. And it was kind of like the little clique. And maybe another group over here would worship another pagan god. And these were just all over the place. They were called mystery religions because nobody really understood what went on in that religion unless you were in it. And they used them as kind of, you know, they'd pit themselves against each other. So if you're a part of this organization, this mystery religion, you might not be part of that one. So if you saw each other on the street, you know, one would carry a little self-righteousness more than the other. And, you know, the secrecy of the whole thing kind of made them filled with pride. And it not just happened in Corinth. It was all over the, the, the Greek Roman Empire. They worshipped idols. They were caught up with idolatry. Worshipping pagan gods. Well, when they would meet as this mystery religion, there was a word in the Greek. And you'll recognize it right away. It's a common word we use for ecstasy in English. And if you look up the definition of ecstasy, a state of being beyond reason and self-control. A state of overwhelming emotion. A mystic or prophetic trance. 
That's how our English language translates that. Well, this was all part of this mystery religion that they all partook in. And so when you took these Corinthians who had a roots in that kind of a stuff, idol worship, and you introduce the aspect of spiritualities, okay, or spiritual giftedness, unfortunately, there was a real temptation for them to bring all that stuff from their previous pagan life, all their understanding of how these mystery religions worked, and they started bringing it into the church. And so when they thought of a spiritual gift, they would think of something in the realm of ecstasy, like you just kind of lose your mind. And it was all based on experience. And you put on top of that, that, you know, you, our history in, in the United States, you know, you go back to the 60s and 70s, the drugs they took, you know, created a lot of crazy thinking, right? They would have illusions of all this stuff. And boy, if you talk to somebody that had a certain, you know, bad trip on LSD or whatever, they'd tell you it was real. You know, the room was full of locusts and, they, and you couldn't convince them otherwise. And even today, there's certain drugs that, you know, you can see people under the influence and they think that, you know, Martians are after them or who knows what. It's, it's, it's creating something in their mind that's not true, but based on experience, they think it is. Well, that's what was happening, started to happen in the church of Corinth. It's all built on experience. It's not built on fact. And so Paul says, you were led astray to mute idols. And he's specifically referring to this mystery religion because that's what they would do. They would get in these groups and they would worship these idols. They would drink certain potions, certain drugs that would give them all these mind-altering issues. And they'd come out of there and they'd be telling their friends, yeah, man, it was a real trip. As I was worshiping, I mean, I was actually talking to the, the god Baca. We were having a conversation. Or the god Zeus. And then it became competitive amongst the different <laughs> groups. Well, you think you talk to this person. You know, the more drugs they took, the worse it got. But it was based on experience. And so Paul says, you were led astray to mute idols. That word is dumb. That's the word he's using. You look at Psalm 115, it talks about idols in, throughout the Psalms, but Psalms one, Psalm 115 specifically, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 2, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And by the way, just a side note, guess where Jesus is today? He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father. So the next time you hear somebody that talks about meeting Jesus while they were shaving or whatever, red flag, stop, stop the music, just stop, go home. Don't talk to me about your experience because I know it's not true, even though they think it is. And they'll tell you, no, you, I, I, it was, he was right there. 
We had a conversation. Well, how do you know it was Jesus? Oh, it looked like Jesus. What? Oh, you mean the little pictures in the Sunday school books that you used to study? With? Is, that the Jesus? Is that how you think Jesus looked like? No, I don't think so, my friends. Jesus looked like any other Jewish man during his time. And the Bible says he wasn't handsome. So sometimes people think their experience outweighs, and they think they're actually having a conversation with Jesus. All you have to say is, hey, you no, know, no, Jesus is in heaven. Well, who was I talking to then? I don't know. But the enemy can disguise himself as an angel of light, so you might want to be very, very careful, even in a worship service. We saw this. Be careful. If it's outside the bounds of God's word, it's not God that's doing those things. It's the enemy because he's seeking to deceive many. So verse 4, the psalmist says, look, our God's in the heaven and he does what he pleases. Their gods, the pagan gods, are what? Silver and gold, the work of human hands. Those are just stupid little statues. Verse 5, they have mouths. They put little mouths on the statues, but guess what? They do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do, they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What's he saying? They're dumb. They're mute. It's dumb to have faith in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes the little statue of Mary or St. Christopher you have hanging around your neck or Mary that's on the dashboard of your car, whatever. It doesn't mean anything. It's not going to keep you from harm. That's not how it works. That's worshiping an idol. And you better be careful. See, there's a fine line between Knowledge and experience, isn't there? I mean, we know that. Pardon the pun. We know that. You can experience something and have certain knowledge of it. Think of your kids. You can tell your child, hey, you know what? Don't touch the stove. It's hot. You're telling them a fact. As a matter of fact, it's so hot, there's a, there's a bowl of... A, 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 a pan of hot water boiling on the back burner. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. And what does the kid usually do? The first thing you walk out, he may do this one time. I'm going to touch that stove. And what happens? The fact lines up with experience, right? Up until then, they didn't know about the experience part. And so that's what happens a lot of time. He has the knowledge because you told him, but... He doesn't have any experience until he touches the stove, and then all of a sudden his experience backs up the fact that you told him. Now, that's a very difficult way of, or a very simple way of talking about something that's very difficult, what they call existentialism. And it started all the way back in the, the 50s. And it's the idea that, that basically, you know what? Whatever you experience is real. That's kind of the bottom line. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. 
If you experience it, it's okay. Um, And that's what happens a lot of times with these spiritual gifts. And that's what was happening in the church of Corinth. They remembered back when they worshipped the pagan gods. And now all of a sudden they have these different spiritual gifts. And they had some gifts in Corinth that we don't necessarily have today. That were definitely supernatural gifts. And if you use those gifts, that would be a pretty, you know, telling thing in front of people. I mean, if you were able to heal somebody completely of their sickness, I mean, that's a pretty incredible gift. Well, certain individuals had those gifts back then. And so you can see where they would become very competitive and all this, and and pretty soon their experiences began to outweigh the truth. And that's what happens today even in the charismatic movement. That's why you, you'll watch charismatic meetings going on and you have all these people, quote, worshiping the Lord and they're all talking in weird dialects or whatever you want to call it. I just call it gibberish because that's what it is for the most part. And they're all doing it at the same time. And if you were there, you would say, this is kind of confusing. What's going on here? Oh, we're just expressing our spiritual gifts, the gift of tongues. And when you call them on it and say, well, wait a minute, doesn't Paul say that if you're going to practice that gift, you do it maybe one or two or three people and you have an interpreter because it is a known language? But see, they don't want to hear that. People that practice these kind of things today. If you have a friend or a loved one that practices the gift of tongues, they say, a good thing to ask them is say, well, what language do you speak? Because in the Bible, the gift of tongues is always a language. And usually people who are ignorant about their spiritual giftedness and saying they have the gift of tongues, and you say, well, what language? They say, well, no, it's not a language. It's it's the language of angels, Paul says. And then you can say, really? So are you telling me that in the Bible when angels spoke, and on occasion they did, we know that, right, at the grave and other times in the Old Testament, that nobody could understand it because they were speaking gibberish? I don't think that's true. I think every time an angel spoke, and by the way, it was always a man, angels are men, they spoke in the language of the people they were speaking to. They didn't need an interpretation. It was a known language. That kind of shoots a hole in their argument that it's the language of angels, something like that's unattainable unless you have this gift of tongues, they call it. And so you can see where this gets real dicey. Because usually conversations that you have with people like that ends like this. Well, I know what I experienced. <laughs> and at that point I say, you know what? I really don't care what you experienced. I'm just telling you your experience is not lining up with the Word of God. And if you want to put your experience over the Word of God, go right ahead. But it's at your own cost, my friend. So we need to make sure that we are able to bring our experiences, even those you know, wonderful, worshipful experiences that God gives us as a church. We bring them to, under the scrutiny of God's word. And we make sure that we're doing things proper and in order. Well, here in verse 3, he continues, and he basically talks here about the principle of interpretation. The principle of interpretation. So we've looked at the problem of ignorance, the practice of idolatry, and then lastly, before our communion, the principle of interpretation. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. 
It's funny, why is he bringing this up? Maybe there were people in the church that were claiming somehow they had some divine gift and they'd stand up and say something, but it, it was not something that was praising Jesus. It was something that was like that. Jesus is accursed. That happens a lot, even in the modern-day charismatic movements. There's been people who have spoken certain languages, literal languages, and they've been in under the spiritual control of the enemy, and they've gotten up and, quote, professed their faith and their giftedness, and somebody sitting in the congregation says, wow, that person just cursed God. We have to be careful. So there's that negative aspect of it. He says, no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Just because you're using your spiritual gift, that doesn't give you a pass. (laughs) He's saying if you're using your spiritual gift under the control of the Holy Spirit, guess what? What you're doing, what you're saying, what you're teaching will be honoring to the Lord. That's back in, look at what it says back in 1 John chapter 4. All the way in the back of the Bible there, 1 John chapter 4. Talks about testing the spirits. John writes, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Wow, even though it's a great experience, don't believe it if it doesn't line up with Scripture. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That what gives us the inclination that there's a lot of spirits out there that are not from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by the way, when he says that, he literally means people who go out and teach in Jesus' name, but they're filled, they're controlled by a demonic force. And what they're saying may be slick, may be a nice presentation, but you know what? They leave certain things out, and it leads people astray. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. So there's one test. If you ask somebody who says they're a Christian or they're a teacher or whatever, say, well, tell me who Jesus is. Well, he's the half-brother of Lucifer. Or whatever. I don't think so. I don't think you're speaking the truth. Or he's this or he's that. See, if their answer is not Jesus Christ is incarnate, God-man from the Heavenly Father. He's God in the flesh. Verse 3, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So you have people out there teaching in, quote, Jesus' name, and you had people practicing gifts in the church of Corinth in Jesus' name, possibly, under the influence of the spirit of the Antichrist. They probably were a false convert. They probably weren't part of the true church. What you heard was coming and now is in the world already. If it was in the world then, trust me, today. He says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you, look, is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? 
They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. But this we know, the spirit, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So that's what he says negatively. No, no man speaking of the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. A but then positively there, no man, he says, can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now you can word it. You can say the sentence. You can say, oh, Jesus is Lord. But guess what? The enemy knows that he's Lord too. But they're not saved. So you don't want to go to the extent of saying, well, I, I said Jesus is Lord, so I guess I'm saved. No. Once again... Are you a new creation in Christ? Has God transformed you? Has God changed you? Have you come to a point in, in your life where you have realized that, you know what? My salvation is more important than anything else because I believe there is a God. I believe that he did create me. I, I believe that he does desire me to know him. I believe that he does desire me to be in heaven with him one day. I don't think you just die and become a lump of dirt somewhere, that there is eternity. I believe the Bible to be true. If that's what you're believing, then you need to turn your life over, take it away from yourself and turn it over to him. It's called faith. Say by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. We can't work at it. But we have to give it up. We have to come to a point where we realize this is it. I need to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. And when you come to that point, you don't want to dilly-dally around. Because if God is clearly showing you that, then you need to do what Scripture tells you to do. You need to cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You need to confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart. And the Bible says that you will be saved. No question about it. You will be transformed by the grace of God. But he's not going to do it as you go to bed and put the Bible under your pillow every night, thinking somehow, miraculously, you'll just wake up a Christian. No. God doesn't drag us into heaven. Even though we're elect and you know what? He chose to put his love upon us. He's not going to drag us into heaven. He gives us the opportunity to respond to the gospel and respond we must. Father, we thank you for our teaching this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would minister your grace to our hearts. Help us to be aware that a lot of times our experiences can lead us down the wrong path. Father, sometimes we can even dream things that we wake up and we believe in what we have dreamed and then common sense sets in and realizes, no, that really didn't happen. That was just a dream. But emotionally, it affects us because we believe it to be true even though it's not. And so when it comes to spiritual gifts, we need to make sure that we're exercising caution, that we're exercising every form of biblical understanding when it comes to things like these. We don't want to just say, well, I experienced it, and that settles it. That's silly. 
Our emotions can tell us a lot of things, and usually they're wrong. But, Father, your word is so clear that you've put out, that you've said that, you know what, all you have to do is trust in the death of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for your salvation. And supernaturally, he will take upon himself all of your sin, and he will give to you, he will transfer to you, he will impute to you his righteousness. Because you don't have enough righteousness to be saved by God. None of us do. We have to rely on the righteousness that Christ freely gives us through his work on the cross. And Father, we thank you that once we make that commitment, once we cry out to you and you save us, Lord, that you give us this Holy Spirit that we're talking about. That we don't just have to meander through our Christian walk until you come back, hit and miss, trying to do the best thing. No, you've given us a very... Spirit of God to reside within us that we can call upon for wisdom, for understanding. And Lord, we pray that you would just enable us by your Spirit to worship you, to be taught by you, to understand the words of Scripture in a way that is supernatural, in a way that we can sit back and give you honor and praise because we couldn't get So we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, bless our time of communion as we partake together. And and Father, we pray that um, more than anything else that you would be honored and glorified in all we do and say. And if there's one here that's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that even now that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. And Father, that you would perform that transaction on their behalf. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.